So I again want to welcome everybody, and if you are a guest or you haven't been here the last few weeks, or you're just trying to figure out who this Jesus is and what following him means, we're going to plunge right into some kind of deeper and complicated stuff. So I'm kind of sorry about that. I'm not sorry because we're going through the Bible. But you just jump in, like they said on Andy Griffith, the darlings, you know, jump in and hold on. Uh, those of you who are younger, nobody got that but me, okay? Uh, jump in, hold on, and, and we'll try to make things clear, particularly for those of you who are just examining the faith, try to point out some things that aren't so um, detailed and technical. Now, with all that said, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're saying our tagline for this is a messy church on a big mission. And this is going to be our fourth Sunday talking about food sacrifice to idols. And so let me just give you the real quick snapshot of where we've been so far. Corinth was in Greece. There were temples all over the place, and people were in those temples making offerings, multiple little g-gods, and then they would eat the meat and the food that had been offered and sacrificed, just like going to a restaurant. And Paul was challenging them about this, and they have written Paul a letter And basically in their letter, what they seem to be saying is, hey, this wasn't necessarily all the Corinthians, but maybe some affluent or um, influential leadership. Uh, They said, hey, Paul, we're super enlightened now because of your preaching. We used to be polytheistic and have all these little g-gods, but you have preached the gospel to us, and now we believe there's one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so... Those little g-gods and all those little temples over there, we're just basically going out to eat. It's not a big deal. Now, we know that we offended some of our Jewish brothers who have a more scrupulous conscience and even some Gentiles, but that's okay because someday they'll get enlightened like us too. All right, the second thing they said to Paul, because they didn't want to go along with him on this, they said, hey, Paul, Peter, who's also called Cephas, He was an eyewitness of Jesus for like three years, like a real apostle. And um, Apollos, he is a really super good speaker. So these guys we think are really, really apostles. And they took money from us in patronage while while they were teaching for support. And you're not a very good speaker and you didn't accept our support in patronage while you were doing your ministry. So we're really not sure that you're a real apostle. So we don't have to listen to you anyway. And then the third thing that they seem to be saying, and this is actually just, uh, it's not stated directly in the text, but I think you can infer it pretty clearly. They say, hey, we were baptized in the name of Jesus and we eat around the Lord's table. So by eating around the Lord's table, that's the real table that we think is true. And when we go over there to Olive Garden in the Temple of Poseidon, it doesn't really matter. Now, Paul has responded to them on each of these points. And he says, basically, you're wrong about being so enlightened, but I'm going to grant you that for the sake of argument. And even if I grant you that, you should have paid attention to your brothers and sisters and not trampled on their conscience. You should love the brothers. Second of all, I am an apostle. I have seen Jesus, our Lord, and I have authority. And he had said back in chapter four, when I come, I'm going to find out what kind of power all you talkers have because God's given me power as an apostle. 
And then the third thing he basically says to them is he says, be careful about your presumption. Because if you read your Bible in the Exodus, the Israelites were all baptized in the sea. They came out, they ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. And hey, those who were in idolatry and rebellion against the Lord, their bodies were scattered all over the desert. So be careful. Now, just as we, we look at this, we're coming today, some of you will breathe a sigh of relief, we're coming to the conclusion of this matter about food sacrificed idols. So Paul's going to come out and be really explicit. But before we start looking at the text, I, I want to ask you this question, who cares? Right? Why should you care? There's no temple down the street that's serving food that had been offered to idols. What is the application to us? And I would say this text in particular has great and grave application to us. Why do I say that? Because it is my opinion that the polarization in our wider culture over social and political matters has come into the church and caused divisions and acrimony between brothers and sisters in Christ in which we're unable to distinguish between things that are absolute and essential and other things that would be left as matters of conscience to other people. And so I just want to give you a quick example, and I run the risk of having some people go down a rabbit trail, but that's okay. Uh, J.I. Packer uh, was a man, he passed away in the last few years, who for several decades was a bastion of evangelical, biblical, solid orthodoxy. You go out if you don't know who J.I. Packer was and Google all of his books. Going back to the early 1980s, he wrote Knowing God, which is a systematic theology on a popular level that influenced all of evangelicalism for decades to come. J.I. Packer was a solid guy. In my small group, we happened to be reading his book called Rediscovering Holiness. This is a, an exhaustive treatment of sanctification and holiness in the New Testament. And near the end of that book, he happens to be talking about the church's relationship with people who struggle with homosexuality, and he used the phrase, the label, homosexual Christians. And just if you don't know it, that's now a lightning rod within our own denomination. So here's a guy who's completely orthodox, using a phrase, innocently enough, that now would become a source of polarization. These are the kinds of things that are before us on any number of levels. And our text today speaks, I believe, directly to those things. And what I want you to see in this text is that Paul is giving those of us who believe the injunction to live for God's glory in a gospel-centered love for one another that reflects wisdom. Live for God's glory with loving, gospel-centered wisdom. That's what we're after. And we're going to see that under three headings. We're going to say some things are absolute. Some things are left to conscience. In all things, we act in love for the glory of God and the good of the gospel. Some things are absolute. Some things are left to conscience. All things for God's glory and love for the propagation of the gospel. Those are the three points. So we're going to read our text bit by bit and take this up today. First of all, saying that some things are absolute. So on your worship guide on page 12 and on the screen, we begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, and we'll read through 22. 
Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I want to call your attention to the play on words that Paul gives at the end of this paragraph. In chapter 8, he was talking about, oh, you who are enlightened, consider yourselves to be strong, and you're trampling on the consciences of the weak. And now he turns it around and says, watch out, you who think you're so strong that you can eat in idle temples. Are you stronger than the Lord? Would you risk rousing his jealousy? And that's why last week he gave us the Bible study from Exodus about people's bodies being scattered in the desert by a holy God who were presumptuous. And the whole, the whole source of the argument here is that he finally comes down and says, look, all these little g-gods, Poseidon and whoever else that you have out there, behind that whole structure, behind that whole polytheistic structure is demonic activity. And those who participate, those who have fellowship in that altar are in participation with demons. And this is a missiological thing that you can carry with you the rest of your life. You may not participate in blood sacrifices going to other places. And I I well know about this from my time in Africa. And Paul's coming down and saying, you enlightened folks actually aren't so enlightened. What you're doing is you're engaged in a violation of the commandment to have no other gods besides me. To not misuse the name of the Lord. This, this word to participate is also the word that some places translated fellowship. Hey, when you, when you who believe are gathered around the Lord's table, are you not having fellowship because the Holy Spirit's there with a meal with Christ? Are you not having fellowship with him in his body and blood? Are not the same people doing the opposite of that with demons over in these temples? I'm warning you, you can't have it both ways. It's idolatry. And so what Paul's really affirming here is the permanence and stability of the Ten Commandments, of the law of God. And we just want to, to, by way of application, talk about this just for a minute. Uh, There's a a well-known counselor, if I dropped his name, you would know who he was, and a pastor who went with him a long time ago in the 70s. And let me give you this caveat. I do not recommend this as a counseling methodology. In fact, I think in most instances, it would be harmful as opposed to helpful. But the story goes like this. There was a person who was very, very depressed and who had attempted suicide. And this counselor and this pastor went and after listening and conversing for a while, said to this person, you realize that that you have broken the commandment, do not murder, that you tried to take your own life, you tried to murder yourself. 
And by the Holy Spirit, God used this conviction, this clarity of an absolute to cut through the fog of all kinds of depression and to bring this person to saving faith in Christ and then the resolution of their suicidal tendencies and ideation. And the whole point of telling that story is not counseling methodology, but to say these absolutes are real and they bring clarity to our lives. So this is just a little tiny brief primer on the use of the law of God by Christians. First of all, God's law, the Ten Commandments, are given to us as a tutor or or a discipling tool, a teacher to lead us to Christ. How does that work? Well, the commandments have both a positive aspect and, and a negative aspect. When it says, do not steal, it's also saying, be generous with your goods. Work doing something useful with your hands so that you can have something to give to those in need. And those, those positive aspects also go to the heart. Do not commit adultery also means not looking at other people and objectifying them as sexual objects. And, and everyone that's been a teenager has, has probably entered into that. So in every case, all 10 of those commandments, he says that greed is idolatry. All these things go after our hearts and it shows us that you will never merit being close to God by observing the law. Let me say it the way Paul says it. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So then the law is a a pedagogue or a tutor that leads us to Christ. Not only at the beginning of our believing life, but all the way through. As I consider the sins of my heart on a daily basis, it's still a tutor that leads me back to Jesus. Well, what has Jesus done then? Well, Jesus has fulfilled all 10 of those commandments, both in their positive aspects as well as in their negative, both in what they command us to do and forbid us from doing. Jesus has fulfilled it all in thought and word and deed. He is the righteous one. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice, not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world, according to 1 John. So what Jesus did was that he fully satisfied the law before the Father as a human being, as the God-man. And then he went to a cross, and the penalty that's against us is death forever for violating all those commandments of the law. He took the penalty of death in his body on a tree. He bore the curse that was given to Adam and Eve because it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. That's what the scripture says. And he was buried and on the third day he was vindicated as the triumphant son of God by being raised to life by the power of the spirit. And so he ever lives to save those who come to faith in him. So the law then is always a pedagogue or a tutor or a teacher to lead us back to a crucified and risen savior so that we can simply collapse on him and believe, oh, God has forgiven all my sins and counted me perfectly obedient in his sight as a free gift that I received by faith through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that gospel today? Now, see, this is the point I was saying. This is a complicated bit of stuff in this letter, but that's not complicated, is it? You can can receive and believe and rest on Christ 
and be reconciled to God. And those of you who say, yes, I believe, but you're riddled with guilt and shame, you can come back again to this fountain and say, oh, Christ has fully obeyed the law on my behalf. I stand before the Father by grace through faith, completely righteous in his sight. The first use of the law is as a tutor to lead us to Christ. And if you want to get near to God by your obedience, you're asking for despair if you'll take it seriously. If you'll take what Jesus said about the sins of your heart seriously and you want to be near to God and be approved by him by your own performance, you're headed for despair and shame and guilt. So let Christ be your righteousness. Let him be the atoning sacrifice for your sins. But then we turn around and we say, well, Paul is, I'm going to give you a new theological term. Paul's no antinomian. Antinomian simply means a person who's, with the coming of Christ, has thrown away the law completely. And that's what some people have done from Romans 10. They say Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Well, it's clear that Paul didn't intend that the law wouldn't be a guide to teach believers what love looks like. So what happens is you believe you have a new heart and a new mind. You have the mind and heart of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And you say, Lord, I want to do your will. Now I, I want to love God and I want to love my neighbor. And so then that's just not unicorns and rainbows. That's just not whatever you made up. Loving God means having no other gods beside him. It means not going and eating in idol temples. It has substance to it. It means not misusing his name. It means remembering the Lord's day to keep it holy. It means having one day and seven of rest. And then on the other side of the coin, it means loving your neighbor, meaning not murdering them and hating them and being angry with them, not committing adultery, not using people in my heart as sexual objects, all the things that flow out of that, not stealing, being generous with people. I, I, I won't go through all the commandments, but you can see how it tells us what a renewed life of joyful obedience really looks like. So this is, this is encapsulated. This is what Paul is bringing down to the Corinthians right here. And listen, brothers and sisters, those things are absolute. Now, what we're going to find is the application of them in individual circumstances is going to depend on conscience, but there's certain things that are out of bounds, right? So if you're, if you're a member of this church and uh, we've all agreed together that we're going to follow Christ and, and it comes to light that you're stealing money from your employer and somebody comes with that, tent, that commandment and says, brother, this says do not steal. And you are wishy-washy and you say, no, well, maybe, whatever. And then, you know, six months from now, we find that you have another $20,000 in your bank account or whatever it is that you're embezzling then we're going to say, you have to turn back and follow Jesus. You're going to declare yourself and we're going to declare you to be outside of the community of faith because of your refusal to repent. That's really clear, right? But then the positive side of that command is on generosity. So then if we pull everybody's bank account out, one person's miserly greed is another man's stewardship, right? And we're not going to go down on matters of conscience like that. So do you see some things are absolute and we're all pretty much going to agree about those things and some things in the application of those commands are going to be a matter of conscience. 
And so that's what we want to really move on to next. And, and what we're after is living wisely in love for one another, for the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel. And, and it's fundamentally, in many ways, how we get along with each other in these matters. Because that was really the issue here. It partly was idolatry, but it partly was what was happening in the body. So let's look then about some things being a matter of conscience. Verse 23, we're going to read 23 through 30. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He's quoting, I believe, the Corinthians here. He had done this before. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is what they had been saying to him. Hey, we can do whatever we want. All things are lawful. He's saying, you need to love your brothers. You need to do what builds people up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So you see, Paul's done something really cr critical here that we have to pay attention to. What's the commandment? You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. Idolatry's out of bounds. I, with apostolic authority, am telling you that eating in temples is out of bounds. But I'm also telling you, you can eat whatever's in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. In fact, he tells them, don't go around the marketplace raising questions of conscience for people. But then he turns around, and this is all for the sake of the gospel and the good of the neighbor. He says, if I go over to an unbeliever's house and they tell me when they put the stake before me, this was offered in sacrifice, I'll say, thank you, no, I'll just have the green beans and potatoes. Why? Not because of his conscience. He can eat that steak giving thanks for the glory of God. But the other person has raised an issue and he would rather go meat hungry than hinder the gospel. Do you see the driving force behind this? The driving force behind this is love for other people with a concern for them to understand the gospel. But now I want you to imagine Paul He's on, the, he's on the, what do you call those things, meal trains? Sometimes churches have these things where you, you go from house to house and eat meals at different people's houses. Anyway, suppose Paul's on the meal train and one person who's an unbeliever says, this was offered in sacrifice. He says, no, thank you for the steak. Then he goes down the street to the next house. There's a steak laying there on his plate that had been offered to an idol, but he doesn't raise any questions about it and nobody says anything. So he breaks out the A1 sauce and eats it up. He doesn't have to be ruled. He's not ruled by the weaker brother's conscience, right? He's not ruled by the other man's conscience because he can give thanks to God for it. So, so in all this, what he's after is love for other people and the progress of the gospel. Now, the interesting thing about this text is these are kind of one and off situations. What we have are more chronic and long-term situations. But the point here is this. Will you and I love our brothers to believe 
Let me just ask my brother, do you understand the absolute of this commandment? Okay. In your application of it, I'm going to leave you in your conscience before the Lord. I'm not going to run around raising questions of conscience with everybody. So where does this come down? What, what does this mean for us? Well, I'm going to give you some illustrations and some case studies and things to think about. Um, I was doing this at the early service, and at a certain point, one of the children yawned really big. And I thought, okay, it's time to quit. So you can send me a signal by yawning if you need to later on. Uh, way back, that door opened again. I don't know. Uh, I only kind of have obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so way back in, uh, way back in somewhere between 1985 and 1990, thanks Butch, Butch is my friend, uh, way back between uh, 1985 and 1990, I was on a church staff up in Philadelphia, and we were very active in the pro-life movement, I was very active in the pro-life movement, it was a time for Operation Rescue, where you go out and sit in front of abortion clinic doors, and people beat you, and police drag you away and then you go to court and jail and all that kind of stuff. That's what we were doing. And so in that whole vibe, in that whole vibe, um, we, we had situations where uh, the various hospitals that were around where you could have your babies, and I was having four babies between like 84 and 90, something, 90. And so there's a real thing where you're going to have your babies. Well, you can't go over there because they do abortions over there and you can't go over there because they do abortions over there. And we found some ways to skirt around that. And it ended up for child number three that um, we were driving all the way from the northeast side of Philadelphia, all the way across Philadelphia, across town, all the way down to the southwest to Misericordia Catholic Hospital. And it turned out to be a whole hour and a half drive. And, you know, you, that doesn't sound like much to you, but you don't know what's going to happen in Philadelphia traffic, and you're not riding with a person who's having contractions that are three minutes apart. <laughs> it's a different issue. So at some point, I had to back up and reevaluate. Is, is, we all agree about this. Life begins at conception. I think maybe you don't agree, and you're a guest here. You're very welcome. But the Bible makes it clear that life begins at conception. And so nobody in this room pretty much is going to disagree that abortion is killing a child. It's wrong. But then the question is, how do you apply that? So you've got a lot of people who agree about the principle, about the absolute. Then the question is, where do you go with that? Well, do you go with that, that you can't go to any hospital that provides those services? Eventually, I backed up and said, wait a minute. This is my, my conscience has been led astray here. I'm free. Anybody who's walking down the street by Abington Hospital and has a heart attack is going to go into the ER, for sure. And I don't have to be bound uh, by that thing. Now, I just want to mention to you, statistically, people in this room will have had abortions. And um, Jesus is a friend for sinners. If that's you or if you paid for one and pushed one, there's forgiveness for you in Christ. So we're just picking that up, though, as a place where we agree about an absolute, generally, those who are following the Scriptures, and, and the application of it can be subject to various consciences. Let's pick another one. How about businesses with a moral agenda? Okay, there are businesses out there that have a moral agenda that's diametrically opposed to mine. And so one of those businesses, maybe three or four years ago, came out with a strong moral push about gender identity and things like that. 
And so I think people who read their Bible and, and will agree that God made people male and female, that that distinction holds. Nobody's, nobody's questioning that. But my response to this particular business was, I'm done with you. Like, you have a moral agenda, I have a moral agenda. Now, I didn't tell you about that. I didn't call you to have a boycott about it because it was my we all agree about what's right and wrong about that, I think, or at least most of us. But how do you apply it? Now, my family members, my family members did not follow me in this boycott. So what shall I do? Shall I go around raising questions of conscience to them? Shall I go around making a syllogism between the Bible says this is wrong, therefore this, therefore this, therefore that. These are the things that are in the church. Let's press this on a little bit more. If you read your Bible, it says, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy says, you know, write the scriptures all over your forehead, hang it around, put it on your door, door post. What does that mean about where you send your kids to school? Well, people are lining up on both sides of a polarized version of what that means. So we all can agree you want to raise your kids to know Jesus. And then the outflow of that in terms of application is going to be up to people's conscience. What are you going to do about transgender pronouns? Eventually, most of us are going to be met with the challenge of a person who is identifying not as their biological sex, who's asking you to address them in a certain way. Will you be violating the commandment not to lie by using that pronoun? Will you be acting in love towards that person? So we can all agree about the absolute and the principle that we would like to see this person not, not go down this pathway, that it's not biblical, the question then of how you relate to them and how you apply that is a separate question. And so you're getting my point here. There are absolutes that I think 97% of us would, would agree about. If you're over here, you're walking outside of the Lord's will. You're violating his commandments. Then there are syllogistic, meaning logical applications that go downstream from that, that some people hold very firmly. You can appreciate that for a Jewish believer not to walk around in the marketplace and just nudge everybody and go, hey, but you know that was sacrificed to an idol, right? Because for them, it's deeply rooted, this whole sacrificial thing. So who are you? Who am I? Who are we as a church? Are you the person who's flaunting your enlightenment in some area over other people and wounding their consciences when you don't have to? Or are you a person who's going around dropping your conscience bombs on everybody that should be left to conscience? Or maybe you're not in a relationship and you're apathetic enough just not to care. Which I can find myself in that camp, camp some days, right? Anybody else looking to fall off the grid out there somewhere? All you need is a couple of solar panels in a cabin. Let's not do that. So
So some things are absolute and some things are matters of conscience. And then what's going to be the guiding principle as we go through all these things? Well, what, what Paul says is that we're going to do all things in love for God's glory. Let's look at verses 31 through 1. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews, and I take this to mean Jewish people outside the church, or to Greeks, I take this to mean Greeks outside the church, because then he says, or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Oh, Paul, you man-pleaser. You just want to please people. You're soft. You don't have a moral spine. You got to stand up and fight. You man-pleaser. Or is Paul an authoritative apostle who's out for the progress and mission of the church to see all nations come to Christ? And clearly... Paul's not a spineless man. But the question is, he knows where to draw his battle lines. And he understands that some things are absolute. You will not eat in the temple of idols. And he knows what things are conditioned on conscience. And he's able to navigate it with an eye towards loving his brothers and sisters and seeing the gospel go to the nations. Now, we've gathered a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds in this room. I myself am from a pagan background. I did not grow up in the church. But from my earliest days as a believer, after about three years, I was plunged into the conservative Presbyterian system. So I kind of consider myself to have grown up over decades in that system. And I just want to point out to you that we have a long history of failing on this issue of loving one another for the glory of God for the purpose of the Great Commission. And our denomination says that we are for the Reformed faith, for Presbyterian polity, and for the Great Commission. Now the question is, will we live up to that? And so when you look back at the history of how we got here, what you find is that in the 1920s, a man named J. Gresham Machen, and you can look up his biography and, and look at his book called Liberalism and Christianity, whatever it was, he saw that there was a clear divergence from the truth. These were absolute things. What did he see? That the Presbyterian Church USA was giving up on the deity of Christ, giving up on the reality of the virgin birth, giving up on miracles that are clearly claimed by Scripture to have been done by Christ, giving up on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the history of liberal theology through the 1800s coming into the early 1900s is that, well, Jesus was kind of raised from the dead in the faith of the disciples. So you use the same language, but you don't mean the same thing. And Machen and others stood up and said, this isn't right. And it was combined with saying, for missions overseas, well, you're just going to give out food and build houses and stuff. We're not going to call anybody to faith and repentance to the exclusivity of Christ. And so they departed. These are men who had tenured professorships at Princeton University. Princeton was the home of, of the, the seminary and academic arm of the PCUSA. These were godly men who, who were brilliant scholars. 
So Machen, um, Oswald T. Alice, Ned Stonehouse, um, uh, others, I can't, I can't, their names won't offer, Cornelius Van Til. All these are the guys who founded the seminary that I went to. So like I'm steeped in this stuff. And they started off giving up everything and having a meeting in a house in Philadelphia to train theological students. That was 1929 before the stock market crashed. And believe it or not, before a decade, the whole thing had splintered. They had rightly separated over absolutes. And then they, when you start off that we're the truth people and you guys are out of bounds, a right impulse, right? They were doing the right thing. Then the question is, are you going to turn that on one another and shoot your friends? Which is exactly what happened. Are we going to be broadly evangelical? This person is the editor of Christianity Today. We better separate from them. Uh, what are we going to say? And this just blows my mind right now, even because I researched this last night before I was going to say anything about it today. They really did divide up over whether or not you could use alcohol in moderation. Oh, grief. Oh, grief. Oh, grief. The potential for a movement to be gospel-centered, to have theological integrity and, and be a foundation for taking the gospel to the nations ends up splintering out of the gate over matters of conscience. Will we repeat the same thing that we've done over 100 years? Will we? Paul, that man-pleaser. So we should take... And, and I just want to just make sure that we're clear about this. I believe, and I'm open for you to find me out personally and argue the point with me, that this, what we're facing right now on these issues of polarization on conscience are direct applications of this text. I'm not overloading something in here. Paul says, don't bring up matters of conscience in the marketplace. He says, do all things for the glory of God and love for the progress of the gospel. Now, our denomination is making some decisions about that, and we'll submit to that on the, the language that they use. I don't know what will be approved at GA and whatnot. I'm not trying to undermine the authority of our courts or anything, but I'm out for you and for me that we would have a heart for the gospel, a love for truth, that they're absolutes, a heart for the gospel that recognizes in wisdom that some things are left to conscience. May, may the Lord purify us and give us zeal for the gospel going to the nations. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you uh, now in the name of Jesus and we thank you for this text. Lord, will you have your way with us? Would you humble me, humble us? Would we be quick to honor our brothers and sisters? To, would you make us quick to ask questions before we draw conclusions. Uh, would you help us, Lord, to really not give in on absolutes? Lord, I pray for all those who are undergoing protracted trial and temptation that, that we wouldn't give in on absolutes, that by your Spirit you would strengthen us. And Lord, would you give us wisdom to know what things should be left to conscience, that we would love our brothers and not trample on those whose consciences are offended. Have your way with us, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.